In the triad of North Carolina where Emerald Hills roll, the Sharp loan team is on a mission to achieve housing goals. With St. Patrick's Day coming, it's a time of luck and cheer. Let's seize the moment and make your dream home appear. Like a pot of gold at Rainbow's End, your perfect house awaits. You'll need a pre-approval to have better rates. In the fields of Winston-Salem where four-leaf clovers grow, we'll guide you through the process, keeping you in the know. This March, when it's warmer and luck and magic fill the air, your home sweet home is waiting for your tender loving care. So don't delay, reach out today and let's embark on this quest with luck and expertise. We'll ensure you're truly blessed. Together we'll find your treasure at Rainbow's Shining End. With the Sharp Loan Team, you'll always have a friend. This is the Triad Podcast Network. I'm Algernon Cash and you're locked in. We are in the midst of another exciting election cycle here in North Carolina. And I, I know so many of you all, you get tired of hearing that same old thing, that this is the most and critical election of your of your life. But um, I actually believe every election is probably one of the most important elections of your lifetime. And um, this season is certainly um, not short of that. So we have some incredible statewide races happening here in North Carolina. Obviously, the entire General Assembly is up for re-election. Um, and this happens to be a fourth year. So we've got some really interesting ha- races happening at the executive level. So I wanted to bring in an old-time friend of mine. You've never seen him on the show, and I, I regret that. I, and we're going to change that. He's going on the list of regular contributors. Um, but Joe Stewart is a 28-year veteran in government affairs, um, been around politics for a very long time. Um, and I, I don't say this to flatter him, but I, I do think he's one of the smartest people I know when it comes to this kind of stuff. And he's one of the first individuals I ever met when I started learning more about public affairs and government relations and politics. And um, he was always very kind to me to sit down and give me some guidance and direction on, on how I could best serve um, right here in the state of North Carolina. And I, I will always appreciate his insight and his wisdom. And now you get a chance, my audience, you get a chance to benefit and, and get some value from his insight. Joe Stewart is the former director of the Free Enterprise Association here in North Carolina and now the current Vice President of Governmental Affairs for the Independent Insurance Agents of North Carolina. Joe, thank you for locking in with me, man. How you been doing? Great, great to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. I, I, I you know, I, I get your emails. You've been hosting these lunches in Raleigh called the Thinkers Lunch, and I've been on that list for a while. I, I regret to say I've not made it to one, but I'm going to get over to, to check you out. And I said, man, I haven't had a conversation with Joe in a while. I was talking to Mitch Kokai over at John Locke Foundation. He's a regular contributor to my show, comes on a lot of times and helps us analyze and break down what's happening at the General Assembly. And I said, you know, it'd be really fun to get Joe in and and get his insight about this current state of politics. Um, I know you're pretty locked in on what's happening in Raleigh. But before we get started, talk a little bit about the Thinker's Lunch. I've been really impressed with some of the speakers and topics that you all been advertising. You know, this is something that uh, I started when I was at Free Enterprise, and, and the intention really was just on an occasional basis to bring in a speaker or speakers on a topic that was relevant to North Carolina's political landscape uh, and open it up to folks, principally folks that are involved in politics, either as lobbyists or association executives, but really anybody operative from the parties, political consultants and such. 
And the intention, as much as anything, was to give folks a chance to hear objectively the insights and observations about North Carolina politics from somebody that has a perspective on it. The one that we did most recently, the Thinker's Lunch in January, featured three of the state government reporters, Laura Leslie, TV reporter from WREL here in Raleigh, uh, Lucille Sherman, who's a government beat reporter for Axios Raleigh, an online publication, and then Colin Campbell's a, a former print reporter now with uh, WNC Radio, uh, who also covers state government for that outlet. And the three of them sort of going through the laundry list of things going on political, as well as all of the races on the ballot in 2024. You know, you get that unique perspective of a reporter many times, been my experience in my career, reporter can't get everything they know into the story. Either there's not space or there's not time sufficient to put into the content of what they're reporting on every single aspect of that particular race or that particular candidate. And so more of a free form discussion avails them of the opportunity to share a lot more about what they know is going on from the interviews that they've done and the observations they make. So it's, it's really uh, the, the role that I play, the simple role that I play for these is to moderate those discussions in the uh, Thinker's Lunch next month uh, or this month, I should say, February 26th, will feature Dr. Michael Bitzer and Dr. Chris Cooper, two political science professors here, uh, Dr. Bitzer from Catawba College and Dr. Cooper from Western Carolina, what, what I would consider two of the superstars among the academic ranks of folks watching not only state politics, but national politics uh, here in North Carolina. And so the, the whole intention of thinkers is just to give people an opportunity to sit over lunch, sort of casually ask questions as they may have of, of the presenters or the speakers. And I just facilitate those discussions. And, and what I found is the the interaction between the people in the audience is as valuable as any other aspect of it. They have a chance to share what they know about what's going on in politics in North Carolina with each other. So just, not that I do it as a public service. It's a $35 fee to attend. That covers the meal. It's no, it's not a profit-making enterprise for anybody. It's really just a great public service, I think, for those that are interested in following politics in North Carolina. Well, I, I have not been yet, but I do hope to get over, maybe even hope to get over this month to the one that's coming up. Um, I, I definitely think one of the things we're lacking in politics these days is more talking and thinking. Um, <laughs> we, we, I, I think anyone attached to politics would, would say we need a lot more thinking and talking these days than, than ever before. Um, we, we do seem to be in a, a, a space and place right now where people are really outspoken um, for certain, and they very have, have very strong opinions and lots of emotion about issues. but some of the conversations that I remember when I first got into this business and some of that long range thinking um, doesn't always happen as much now. But um, yeah, you know, I mentioned at the outset, we're in the middle of a big election cycle. Um, primary is right around the corner here. Um, you know, obviously this is a presidential year. I know you're watching all these races very closely and trying to figure out who's jockeying to, to win. I guess let's start there. I mean, what what do you say for my audience that's really Sometimes it'll maybe a little bit detached from these statewide elections. Um, what are some of the races that you're zeroing in on for this cycle? Well, you know, Algernon, as a starting point, of course, North Carolina characterized as a battleground state in the presidential election, meaning it's up for grabs. And we, we've seen over the last several presidential election cycles some uh, emerging trends in North Carolina that I think would point to the fact that we will be a very competitive state. I think for both candidates, Democrat and Republican, a key state to win if they hope to get the electoral college votes necessary to prevail. But the, the real dynamic that's of interest to me is how quickly North Carolina is changing from a voter standpoint. We continue to grow as a state at 
pace of about 100,000, 120,000 new residents every year. A significant portion of that in-migration comes to the major metropolitan areas. If you look at the data from the last census of 2020, half of the in-migration into the state of North Carolina ended up with increased population in both Wake and Mecklenburg County. So the two biggest counties in the state were absorbing half of all of the in-migration. So continuing to build this incredible urbanization in North Carolina, not not something we have a history of. We were not a state of big cities for much of the 20th century. In fact, I always remind people in the census of 1900, the biggest city in North Carolina was Wilmington, as port cities often were in Atlantic seaboard states. And so th this has changed our, our politics in a significant way, not just that there are more people here and people from other parts of the country, and they bring somewhat their political dispositions with them and then mm. accommodate that as a voter in North Carolina, but still principally that disposition is born out of wherever it is they're from. But the increased populational density in the state is also having an impact. If you go back to the last presidential election in 2020, there's uh, some body of academic research that the population density of about 500 people per square mile uh, starts to produce a more predictable democratic candidate performance. Mm. And so in congressional districts where the overall population density is 500 or more people per square mile, far more likely to elect a Democrat. In the counties that Donald Trump won in North Carolina in 2020, the average population density was only about 150 people per square mile, where the average for Joe Biden was slightly over 450 people per square mile. So we, we see that urbanization and population density now being a factor in North Carolina politics. And it's just different for us. It's a it's a different thing. We're also seeing an incredible diversification of the population of registered voters in the state. Now, about 4% of the state's registered voters are Hispanic, but 10% of the state's population is. And so over the next decade or so, we will see an increasing percentage of Hispanic voters in the state, kids that were born in North Carolina. Their, their parents may not have been here with documentations. They were born here. They were raised as North Carolinians and will have voting rights when they turn 18. That's a very different dynamic from a voting standpoint than North Carolina has a history with as well. A, a, a significant portion of the voting population being second generation Americans. And so we, we also see an increase in the number of, of Asian voters, principally people from the country of India, Indian Americans are now representing a, a significant portion of the electorate as well. And so that increased density population and urbanization and diversification is making us a very different state. So in some ways, the predictive models that we might look to in terms of what's going to happen in North Carolina are less and less reliable because of these changes taking place. We may over the next several presidential election cycles, really have to learn as we go along <laughs> in mm. part because those dynamics are so different than what North Carolina has been like for much of the preceding hundred years. When the weather warms up, so does the real estate market. Sounds obvious, right? It's true. Spring typically means more home sales. But how will the current interest rates affect people's decisions? What about inventory? Is it high or low? And does that benefit the buyer or the seller? And how do those factors take into account a certain price point or area of the triad? Now it's not so obvious, is it? That's why you should turn to the Ginther Group to make sense of it all. You need someone you can rely on to assess your situation, read the data and trends, and steer you in the right direction. Interest rates, inventory, even new construction. There are so many factors that impact our local market. 
and you should get your information from the folks right here in our backyard. Contact Blake Ginther and the Ginther Group today, 336-283-8689, or visit theginthergroup.com. Buying, selling, investing, or just learning, whatever you need, start now. And like me, you can become a Ginther Group client for life. Yeah, you know, in, in some of what I was jotting some notes down while you were talking, and you're right. I mean, it, it, it really is interesting because, um, you know, at the U.S. Senate level, you've got two Republicans, obviously, who both had to run statewide. Um, then you've got a Democratic governor, but you've got a Republican-controlled legislature, and um, it, it's just sort of, it's just all over, all over the map there. It does get really difficult to figure out how do you predict that. But, you know, to zero in on the state legislature a little bit, you, you, as you talked about how the population is growing and, you know, a lot of the people that are moving into the state are ro- locating into urban areas. You know, one of the things that we always had here in this state is sort of this urban and rural divide. Um, so it, it, it sounds like based on a lot of the stats and the insight that you just provided within the General Assembly, that that divide could be getting even greater, right? Yeah, absolutely. And what, what we see in, in in part because of the way the population shift is occurring, even though, as I alluded to, the urban counties continue to grow, there's a significant portion, almost half of all of the counties in North Carolina's 100-county array are actively losing population, even as the state continues to grow. And so legislative districts drawn in the more rural parts of North Carolina have to become bigger and bigger geographically just because to encapture enough of a population to make them equal in size to the urban districts, they have to be very large. And so, as you know, running and holding office in a very big geographic area is a greater challenge than it is if your district is very tight and small and compact because of the voter population densities there. And so as Republicans have held the majorities in our state legislature since the 2010 election, we've continued to see this growth model where the cities are growing and the rural parts of the state are becoming less populated. Going forward, drawing maps that guarantee Republican majorities may become increasingly difficult just because of those urbanization dynamics. The other thing we see, what we refer to as the shoulder counties, the counties around the major metropolitan counties, uh, like Mecklenburg County and the Cabarrus County, Union County, Gaston County, those shoulder counties, which have historically had some uh, significant Republican performance for legislative candidates, may start to become less so as a result of their increasing population density. So Mecklenburg and Wake fill up. People uh, will want to live in proximity to the big city will choose to live in those shoulder counties. Hmm. And so that natural growth will make those parts of the state probably less of a solid Republican performance. But Algernon, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the magic fix in this is that the disposition of, of North Carolinians and Americans generally about what it means to be a Democrat or what it means to be a Republican is also changing. You've got this generational dynamic also taking place. First time in American history, five generations are all present in the U.S. workforce, five. And of the three youngest generational cohorts in this country, they make up more than half the registered voters. And so some significant meaning to what it is to be a Republican or to be a Democrat and what younger people consider to be their principal orientation around politics and party and ideology, in addition to all of these other complexities as a result of growth and and changing demography, 
we may see a complete change and a shift generationally in what the younger generations consider to be their political North Star, what, what it means to be uh, in one party or the other, what it means to be conservative or progressive, that, that all may change over the next several decades as well. Yeah, I, I, you know, history always repeats itself. I've, I've often reminded folks that, it, you know, if we rewind it 100 years, um, the the word conservative and the word progressive <laughs> would not mean the exact same thing today or, or what, what to be a liberal. Um, you, you know, so I, I've always thought that was pretty fascinating. Um, you know, it, it, it the, 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 the names of the, 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 the classifications stay there, but the underlying meaning does have a way of sort of evolving over time and, and, um, many people who would consider themselves conservative um, m- maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago would, wouldn't necessarily be conservative today. Um, and so, um, you know, those things do change. You know, as, as we look at the House, some of the House races, are there any particular districts that you're watching above? I, I know we can't cover all the districts, but any ones that you're watching above any any others yeah, in terms yeah. of pot races? Yeah, if you look overall at the state legislative races, the the partisan preference among voters in those districts based on historical voting patterns. We, we talk about this being a plus or minus number. A district may be plus 16 for a Democrat or plus seven for a Republican based on what yeah. voters that part of the state have historically uh, done in terms of their selection of candidates on a statewide basis. There, there are just a handful of state legislative districts that are truly competitive where the voter average over time is more or less not supported consistently a Democrat or a Republican. So at this point, sort of the macro takeaway is of the 120 state House districts and 50 state Senate districts, I think it's safe to say that the Republicans are very likely to return in January of 2025 with a majority in both chambers of the state legislature. The question may be, can they get to the supermajority level, which means the ability to override a gubernatorial veto on a party line vote, 72 of the 120 in the House and 30 of 50 in the Senate. Um, there is a possibility that the Republicans win. They currently enjoy a supermajority both chambers. There is a possibility under a certain set of circumstances where we would see Republicans retain that supermajority, which would make a big difference determining who, uh, what legislative agenda can get done if, if uh, in fact, Josh Stein is the Democratic nominee and wins the governor's race. The Republicans having supermajority in the legislature means they'd be o- able to override any of his vetoes. So that that becomes significant. So no, no mystery. I think Republicans retain control of the General Assembly. The one question that may be is that the, it, are they able to retain it at that supermajority level? You, you know, you mentioned um, a lot of these races no longer being competitive. I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, um, you know, oftentimes um, many of these races don't really go beyond the primary. Um, so the primary is where, where the competition happens. And then if you get into the general, to your point, I mean, it's, it's essentially solved at that point. What does that do for the, the, the voters and citizens of North Carolina? I mean, does that give us a, a larger voice or a, a smaller voice in terms of what's happening in Raleigh? Yeah, some some of it is reflective of a change that's occurred in American politics generally. People have, over the last several decades, chosen more exclusively to live among only those people that they agree with politically. And so when you draw a legislative district, of course, it has to be, the district lines have to be contiguous. It has to be all contained within one uh, particular geographic area. And so it, it is true, Dr. Michael Bitzer did a survey of 2,700 or so precincts in the United, in North Carolina of the, you know, that's a sort of a geographic unit of politics as a precinct where people vote. Only a few dozen were actually competitive in terms of the historical voting patterns there. So the the truth is that districts in many ways are a reflection of how North Carolinians have chosen to live 
Um, there, there is some speculation that if you had a different process, of course, the legislature is able to draw the maps. The governor doesn't have a say. There's no veto over district maps that all inevitably spills into court. And then there's a decision that may go as high as the U.S. Supreme Court. But I think some some part of it, the point you make is it, probably the primaries become a more important phenomenon. We might want to look at a different way of, in effect, the taxpayers underwrite the parties process for selecting their candidates for the fall by opening it up to a popular ballot that's run by the state of North Carolina. And there's a good public policy reason for that. People to remain confident that there's integrity in elections. But we can handle it any number of ways. We could say to the parties, you're going to have to figure out who your candidates are, have a nominating convention. Or we could say the primaries are open. You're able to vote for any candidates regardless of party. There's other ways that other states do this. But because of these dynamics that have taken place, it might be time for us to consider some alternative in terms of how the candidates that are going to face off against each other in the fall are selected because primaries have a tendency to have a much smaller voter turnout. Um, and as a result, it's only a handful of people deciding who the candidates are that uh, meet in November. It might be better to have it handled a different way if, if in fact, these factors are, are real and we want to try to get the two best representatives of the two parties on the ticket against each other in November, maybe a different way is is necessary. It's time to get serious about your financial future. It's never too early, but it could be too late to get started. And that's oftentimes the hardest part, getting started. How much do I save? Where do I invest? Do I save for college or retirement? How much for each? And who do I talk to about it all? Okay, we'll keep things simple for now and help you answer the last one. We recommend you begin with a local financial advisor, and that's Jennifer Johnson of Three Magnolias Financial Advisors. She'll sit down with you for a complimentary introductory consultation and go over all of your questions. Get started on the path to achieving your financial goals. Visit 3magnoliasfinancialadvisors.com or call 336-701-1600. Get comfortable with your financial future. Three Magnolias Financial Advisors, Retirement, Financial Planning, and Investments. Securities offered through Satara Advisor Networks, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Three Magnolias Financial Advisors. Three Magnolias Financial Advisors and Satara Advisor Networks are not affiliated. Satara is under separate ownership from any other named entity. I'd be a huge proponent and supporter of it, Joe, um, because it, it, to me, it also puts candidates in a position where they can just talk to one side of the aisle and you know as long as you get through the primary you you really don't have to listen to the other side of the aisle which which also has constituents that also have real issues that they want to they want to get heard as well Um, but i do think it really limits our democratic process to some degree when these races become essentially non-competitive i mean if you if you can convince your party um to elect you in the primary then you you really you know you sit back and you you don't have much to do until till november um, and, and, and oftentimes, because these races in these districts have been drawn the way they, they've been drawn, um, you, you're now getting less and less members of the opposing party even filing at all to run in the general. You know, they, they tend to take their resources and want to center in and focus on those hotly contested races where there's a little bit more of a narrow margin. Um, so you don't even get these parties really playing across the, the whole field at this point. Um, when, when you look a little higher, I mean, at the Council of State, I mean, obviously, we've got some really exciting races there. I mean, Treasurer Falwell is, is the tie, decided to retire his position as treasurer and um, is running for governor. Of course, uh, Mark Robinson is leaving the lieutenant governor's office and running for governor. Um, you, you've got um, Josh Dobson, who's also retiring in terms of the Labor Commission, um, and, and that seems to be an emergence, emerging competitive race there as well. 
Um, any council of state races that you're sort of zeroing in on? Yeah, I think actually in many ways, the, the two interesting ones, of course, the governor's race is going to be very fascinating. In, in fact, in, in many assessments, the most competitive governor's race in all of the United States. Of all of the states that are holding contests for their governor, North Carolina probably is the one that's the most competitive of all those states. So it'll be interesting in its own right. One, the attorney general's race, and very, very likely uh, Dan Bishop going up against Jeff Jackson, two members of Congress currently who've made the decision to run for attorney general, the two very strong candidates, good fundraisers each. That's going to be a hotly contested race, and I think garner a lot of national attention just in terms of uh, of that race is a we've we've seen this of course josh stein uh, attorney general currently decided to run for governor sometimes they joke and say ag stands for aspiring governor and so <laughs> you and i've talked about this <laughs> that so, or the treasurer's office <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right so i think the attorney general's race will be very interesting uh, you know a, a close second the lieutenant governor's race which has not garnered a lot of attention but a, a sort of a broad base of republican candidates the deanna ballard is a former state senator running yeah, I, Hal Leatherman. I don't. I don't know that any any of the candidates have a a strong uh, competitive advantage. You know, there's a thirty percent rule. You have to get thirty percent of the vote to avoid a runoff. Um, with low information on these candidates, it's just a very difficult thing for voters to figure out who they would want to support in such a broad based uh, selection of candidates. That that may be very interesting. But the the other one is sort of the sleeper race, the superintendent's race, superintendent of public instruction in North Carolina. Sort of interesting, uh, Kathy Truitt, the incumbent Republican running again. Uh, Mo Green is, was recently with the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation. Retired. I know him well. Yeah, I think that is going to be a really interesting uh, a race. Uh, a lot of focus. I think Green, uh, you know, he's in a three-way primary, so he's not the candidate uh, for November yet. But I think he probably stands the best chance of winning the Democratic primary there. Uh, very likely to have strong support on the Democratic side. So it, perhaps a really robust conversation about differing visions of what public education needs to be in North Carolina between those two candidates. Typically, su superintendent races don't get a lot of attention, but that one that one might get more than, than uh, in a usual election cycle. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. And now, you know, I am Republican, so my audience, don't don't y'all start sending me any nasty messages or jumping on me. But um, I am a Republican, but I'm a huge fan of Mo Green. Um, I, I went through the North Carolina Leadership Forum um, through Duke um, Sanford School of Public Policy with Mo, and obviously I know him because he's local. Um, really smart guy, um, and I personally I, I I think he'd do just a terrific job in, in in that particular position. But you're right. I mean, there are some really interesting races to watch. You know, up and down the the, the, the ballot. Um, you know, there was a poll that was recently taken. I, I was actually talking with some colleagues at the Carolina Journal about this last week. Um, and I don't remember the exact stat that they shared with me, but it sounds like a, a growing majority of North Carolina would really like for the state school board um, to be elected, not necessarily appointed. What are your thoughts about that? You know, that, that's interesting. In the history of North Carolina, why we have so many statewide executive branch offices that are elected at 10, governor, lieutenant governor, and eight others, not another state with more than 10. I think a couple of states have 10. 10's a lot. I mean, that's a pretty wide array of executive branch functionalities that are having to be administered by an elected official. It, 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 is, a, it is a tough thing to say that it's a good idea 
to compel people to run for a particular office when it's very difficult to raise the money sufficient to educate voters about the real differences between candidates and where they stand. And some ways you could make an argument, local school boards have long been elected, even though they have no taxing authority, they have to ask their county board of of commissioners for the money that's needed to fund the local school system. So the question is, why why do you elect someone that doesn't really have an authority over the use of taxpayer money? And it just complicates things to some extent to have politics enter into the public policy making arena. These are not my opinions. I'm just saying these are sort of the arguments that are made. Uh, I know even in some states, I have a friend who lives in Colorado, the Board of Regents for the Colorado University system are all elected statewide. So like our UNC Board of Governors equivalent Mm -hmm. elected in Colorado. And some of that's just based on the historic disposition of Coloradians in terms of how they want things done. But I, I mean, I can make a good case that maybe a consolidation of some functions within the executive branch of North Carolina would be good. Maybe having the governor and lieutenant governor run as a ticket instead of a, two separate races. 100 percent agree. <laughs> and and you, certainly key functions would make sense to have vote. But like a labor, no offense to the incumbents, but like a labor commissioner. I don't know why that would need to be an elected position necessarily i haven't worked in the state treasurer's office i think the the core functionalities there the responsibility and the kind of qualification you want for that office having it be elected is always a precarious thing if somebody got elected that wasn't really capable of handling the duties of being the sole fiduciary for a very large public pension fund i mean it could be disastrous consequences for the people of north carolina in that regard so more more elections i guess is a very democratic sense of of how you want the the voters to be able to have a say in who's uh, administering their money and making public policy. But it, it is a politics is a tricky thing. And sometimes what guides a voter in a particular election year is more passion than it is practical thought about who's the best qualified candidate. So there's always that peril. But uh, public education is a very difficult topic. It is a big portion of what the state spends each year for the services it provides. And it's hard not to say that maybe because of that, it needs to have somebody elected who's responsible for guiding that policy. But it, you know, it's $2 million a week to run television in the state anymore. It's a very expensive proposition to run statewide. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that would be a, a better option than the option we have now. Well, well, considering voters are pretty challenged to pay attention to the races that we already have, um, <laughs> I, I, I think giving them more homework um, might might not be necessary the solution right. either. So we, we may have to think through that. Um, you know, I'm watching a lieutenant governor's race really close. Um, I, I think that's a really interesting race as well. I, I, I agree with you. A lot of Republican candidates in that race. And um, I, I remember back in 2012 when Dan Forrest ran, he had to go into a runoff against Dale Falwell. Feels like that's probably what's getting ready to happen again this this particular cycle around. Um, you know, speaking of um, Treasurer Falwell, I you know I've known him for about 20 years. Obviously, he's out of Forsyth County here, where I call home. Um, I think the world of, of Treasurer Falwell, um, very smart guy, did a lot of great work in the House, great work in the Commerce Department under the McCrory administration. And I think he's actually been a really good treasurer. He's he's upset at some people, um, but but I think he's done a pretty good job. Um, but you know he he's wanting to obviously take on the the, the big spot. He's running for governor. Um, you know he won the Carolina Liberty Conference straw poll um, a couple of weekends ago when I was down there with the John Locke Foundation. But you know Joe, it just feels like to me he he is still working an uphill battle against the populist wave that that has really gripped the Republican Party. I mean, how do you how do you see that shaking out in in March between obviously Robinson, Graham, and and Falwell? 
Yeah, Meredith College poll just came out uh, recently in, in in that race. It, interesting enough, it still shows the Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson with a pretty considerable lead over both uh, Treasurer Falwell and Bill Graham, the trial lawyer out of Salisbury, who got into the race kind of late, has infused his campaign with a, quite a bit of his personal money. But still, uh, Robinson enjoying a pretty significant lead over those two fellow Republicans. Still a very significant portion of the electorate, very likely Republican primary voters in that poll, still saying they haven't made up their mind. And the same thing in the Democratic uh, race for governor, too. For this close to the election to have such a significant portion of people still undecided is very interesting. And it maybe speaks to what you were saying before. The voters are just not interested in paying attention as closely as they might have otherwise. Maybe some part of this general dislike and distaste of politics in this time in American history leads people to not be attentive. Uh, these Candidates have certainly been spending a lot of time over the last several years talking about their candidacies for governor. So it's not for lack of trying on anybody's part. Is no one's really locked it in. But I think for the current lieutenant governor, this is a phenomenon that we see nationally with Republican primary voters, too. They've just made a commitment in the same way that voters have made a commitment to Donald Trump. Republican primary voters have made a commitment to Mark Robinson. And whatever's come, comes out or is said or other information that's revealed about these candidates, it's not making a difference. Those voters have just made their decision. That's who they're going to support. And I think to some extent, that's the phenomena in the Republican primary for governor. There's just a significant portion of the Republican primary electorate that made the decision to support Mark Robinson. And that's what they're going to do. It doesn't matter what happens between now and March 5th. 100% agree. I, I, I tell my friends, it, it feels like it's more like a football game than, than, than politics. I mean, it's like you, you're just committed to who your team is um, and, and no matter what they do, you come up with a reason to justify, hey, well, they, you, you know, you know, whatever mistake they made. But um, it, it's really interesting. Um, if you're just not joining us, my name is Algernon Cash. You're locked in. The other voice you hear with me today is Joe Stewart. He's the director of the uh, um, excuse me, the vice president of government affairs for the independent insurance agents of North Carolina. And we're having a conversation about this statewide election cycle that we're in the middle of. And Joe, as we get ready to wrap up, I've got one more question for you, really still pertaining to the um, governor's race. You're you're out here talking, I mean, the business owners all the time. I'm sure you get a lot of business owners coming to your thinker lunch um, once a month. You're, you, you actually represent an association of really a collection of small businesses. One of the things that I continue to hear, and I'd love to get your reaction to this, is, you know, let's assume Robinson does win the general election. He does become governor. A lot of people, especially business owners, are afraid of what that might mean to the state in terms of our um, ability to continue to attract large corporations. What are your, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, to some extent, it's, it's interesting in talking to business people, in polling has reflected this as well. People that are actively running an enterprise, very confident about North Carolina's economic wherewithal, but less certain about the national and international state of the economy. I, I think there is a little hesitation just because so much of what has been uh, highlighted for the lieutenant governor are some of the more incendiary things that he said, the fear that that representation of the state might be problematic. The, the interesting thing for me is uh, the, the one per point, person I would point to this say is more significant than anyone else in the state of North Carolina right now is State Senator Phil Berger, the president pro tem of the Senate, leader of the Republican caucus uh, in that body. He has had a clear vision since he came in uh, as pro tem after the 2010 election, Republicans took the majority, and has had a very clear vision for what 
he wanted to see done, a lowering of the taxes uh, on both individuals and corporations, rolling back of certain key regulatory uh, restraints as he saw them that were holding the state back. I think to some extent, whomever wins the governor's race, that Phil Berger still has that same clear vision. Mm -hmm. And whether it's a a Republican governor or a Democratic governor, and certainly Phil Berger was pro tem when Pat McCrory was governor, and they didn't always see eye to eye. They're Democratic governors and uh, Democratic legislators, Republican legislatures and Republican governors don't always see. I've having spent ten years in the executive branch, I used to say that our system of government doesn't work despite the fact that there's tension between the executive and legislative branch. It works because there is tension mm. between the executive and legislative branches. But my money really is on Phil Berger's made the decision to run again, whomever the next governor is. I think Berger is really the person who set a course for this state and will continue to do that regardless of who the governor is and make us an attractive destination for businesses. People will want to come here and want to have uh, uh, opportunity to succeed, to bring uh, enterprises from out of other states into North Carolina or start up businesses in North Carolina. The, the policies of the Burger era in the state Senate, I think, will continue. And I think that's what makes a lot of business people bullish on North Carolina. You know, I love that response. Um, I, I honestly had not thought about it from that perspective. So thank you. Thank you. You, you not only I'm, I know you enlightened my audience, but you also enlightened me today. So thank you, Joe, for sharing that. Um, and thank you, Joe, for locking in with me, man. This this is the first of many. Like I said, I'm putting you on my list of regular contributors, and um, I might be pinging you from time to time and asking you to come on and share some of your expert insight with myself as well as my audience. Um, and as always, to my audience, thank you for locking in with us. Um, make sure you are tuned into WTOB because every Sunday morning, that is where the Locked In Show broadcasts. But if you happen to miss me there, Hopefully, you are subscribed to my podcast, which is available on Pandora, Spotify, Apple, wherever you like to get your favorite podcast. The Locked In Show is available there. And until next time, y'all stay locked in. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode on the Triad Podcast Network. Our mission is simple. Provide information, advice, and stories about the people and places that make the North Carolina Triad such a great place to be. You can find us by searching Triad Podcast Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much wherever you like to listen. If you like what you heard and want to support the show and those that contribute, we would truly appreciate a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word along, as do your shares on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Triad Podcast. To get in touch with us, simply email info at triadpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. This is the Triad Podcast Network.